everyone. We're back. We're back. Accept it or be stupid and be a skeptic Unconceivable, unbelievable <laughs> Unidentified flying objects I want to Welcome to the season five premiere of the I Want to Believe podcast. I'm Nomar Slavik, and the homie that knows me more than anybody is back in the building, Kyle Sawyer. You have been missed, my friend. How are you? I'm doing good, doing good. It's been a long time. It has. Happy to be here. Uh, missed most of season four. Well, all of season four, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you snuck in a couple of bonus episodes there, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And, uh, but we're, we're back. Yeah, we're back at it and and ready to go, and I'm just ready to, to jump into it. Yeah, let's just jump right back in. But before we start talking about the episode, as always, I wanted to give a quick reminder that this podcast releases all episodes at once, Netflix style, so you can feel free to binge or take your time or whatever you want to do. Also, all of our I Want to Believe social media and email are in the show notes. And guess what? I've got a new book out called We Only Come Out at Night. It's a collection of short horror stories, and it can be purchased from my online store. The link is slevicstore.company.site, or just check the show notes for links. All right, let's get into it. The Night of the Metal Man. Nope, Silver Man. Sorry, Kyle? This story comes to us from our friends at Mysterious Universe and writer Paul Seaburn. And it's funny that you mention that because the entity described in this story has drawn comparisons to the Falkville middleman, which we covered in season two. Yeah, I think that little stinker and the story must have been top of mind. The Falkville middleman is an interesting case out of Alabama, and that occurred on October 17, 1973. Here's a clip from that episode. A man encountered an odd humanoid being. This man was the town's chief of police. The story starts out as a quiet evening in Falkville. Chief Greenhaw had arrived home in the early evening, ate dinner with his wife, and relaxed for the night. Just before 10 p.m., the phone rang at the Greenhaw residence. The chief answered to a frantic woman yelling about a landed UFO in a field near her home. Greenhaw could hardly believe what he heard, but he was a good cop, and he got dressed and went to check it out. When Greenhaw arrived on scene, he got out of his truck and patrolled the area, but claimed to find nothing out of the ordinary. The chief then returned to his vehicle and decided to take a drive around the field before returning home. Greenhaw cruised around the perimeter of the field. He scanned the darkness for anything unusual, but saw nothing of interest. He then turned down a narrow gravel path for one final pass. That was when he came face to face with an odd entity. 
It stood about a hundred yards down the path. Greenhaw described it as a humanoid figure and got out of his truck and carefully approached, thinking that it may be someone in need of assistance. As Greenhaw continued his search of the area, he was taken aback by the sight of an alien-like creature standing just off the side of the road. The being appeared to be wrapped in aluminum foil as it began to walk toward Greenhaw. It looked like his head and neck were kind of made together. He was real bright, something like rubbing mercury on nickel, but just as smooth as glass different angles give different lighting. I don't believe it was aluminum foil. The tinfoil alien's movements were very mechanical-like. An antenna was attached to its head. When he flicked on his headlights, the alien was obviously frightened as it began to make its escape. Although the Metal Man case occurred five years earlier and across the pond from the Silver Man case, let us know after hearing about the Silver Man if you think the two entities might be related. Yes, please let us know your thoughts. But enough about the Metal Man, which is my bad. Let's get started on the Silver Man. For several weeks in March of 1978, a quiet and unassuming community in the north of England became the site of a media circus, following an inexplicable incident. Who or what was the mysterious figure reported to the authorities, and did it ultimately contribute to the death of its only witness? As Seaburn put it, quote, On March 13, 1978, Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind was unleashed on unsuspecting theatergoers across Great Britain. While there was a massive influx of interest about UFOs inspired by the movie, there was a man by the name of Ken Edwards who would live to curse the extraordinary popularity of Close Encounters due to a real-life extraterrestrial that he happened upon one evening, end quote. Bordered by the M62 motorway and nestled in the northeastern corner of Warrington, England, is the small district of Risley. Following WW2, the region became the site of the headquarters for Great Britain's nuclear weapons and power program. This was called the Department of Atomic Energy and would later evolve into the United Kingdom Atomic Energy Authority. At approximately 11.30 p.m. on the evening of March 17, 1978, 39-year-old service engineer Ken Edwards was making the 15-mile journey home from a union meeting in Greater Manchester. By all accounts, Edwards was a straight-laced, hard-working man who was not prone to flights of fancy or belief in the paranormal. Nevertheless, as the exhausted Edwards drove down an isolated stretch of road through the mostly derelict industrial district where the Risley Atomic Energy Complex was located, something utterly unbelievable snared his attention. Edwards claimed that he first spied what he thought was a man climbing, but he quickly realized that he was looking at a gargantuan, humanoid figure lumbering down the steep embankment adjacent to the nuclear facility. The startled engineer immediately hit the brakes and his van slowed to a halt near the curb of the road some 50 feet away from the hulking humanoid, which was now illuminated by his headlights. Edward stared in astonishment as this bipedal beast lurched down the hill with its arms outstretched, utilizing strange, stiff-legged movements. In fact, Edward's description and the sketch he made of this being makes it hard not to conjure images of some kind of enormous intergalactic Frankenstein's monster. 
Edwards also noticed that this creature assumed an odd, stooped posture as it scrambled down the hill, which seemed impossible for a human to emulate without toppling over. This would be confirmed by investigators who inspected the scene and were unable to imitate the thing's gait, forcing some to wonder if perhaps this silver man, like Apollo astronauts leaping about on the moon, was not susceptible to the same laws of gravity as the rest of us. After a moment, the entity paused at the edge of the road and Edwards got his first good look at it under the glare of his high beams. The anxious engineer estimated that the figure was at least seven feet in height and was either clad in some sort of reflective silver fabric like a radiation suit or had a dull metallic epidermis not unlike Alabama's metal man. Edwards also claimed that the figure's roundish face was black or that it was covered with some sort of mask with no discernible features except for a pair of glowing eyes. Furthermore, it had two thin arms that were not attached at its shoulders but stuck straight out of its chest like a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Edwards tensed as the bizarre being trudged into the road directly in front of his car and turned to face him, staring into his eyes with its own self-illuminated orbs. The moment must have felt excruciatingly long as those two foreign species fixed their eyes on one another, separated only by about 30 feet of asphalt and a windshield. And that was when things went from weird to horrifying. Without warning, two pencil-thin energy beams of light shot from the humanoid's eyes directly into Edward's van. The engineer claimed that as soon as he was struck by these intense ocular beams, he was overcome by a dizzying sensation and lost all sense of time. Edwards also claimed that there was some kind of invisible force that had apparently paralyzed him which he compared to, quote, someone with two enormous hands pressing me down from the top. The pressure was tremendous. It seemed to paralyze me. I could only move my eyes. The rest of me was rigid, end quote. Stranger still, he claimed that he was overcome with unconventional thoughts rushing through his head all at once, but he only remembered one that kept looping over and over in his brain. Quote, is this something from outer space, and what does it want with me?" End quote. A moment later, he regained control of his muscles and realized that his fingers were throbbing and covered with what looked like sunburnt flesh. Even more disturbingly, he noticed that the circuitry of his pricey radio transceiver had completely burned out during the ordeal. Also, it is worth noting that there are some exaggerated reports that erroneously claim that the device itself, or even his vehicle, actually exploded. This was not the case. After this continuous thought and realizing his fingers were burned, Edwards looked up and saw that the entity had apparently lost interest in him and was headed straight for the 10 foot high barbed wire top security fence that surrounded the fire station opposite the nuclear facility. Once it arrived at the fence, the silver man raised its fingerless hands upwards, paused, lowered its arms, and then walked directly through the barrier like a cosmic phantom. As soon as it melted through the fence, the creepy, luminous-eyed creature clambered up the hill next to the fire station and disappeared into the woods beyond. 
Needless to say, Edwards was stunned by this entire episode and took a moment to compose himself and to just wonder what in the hell just happened. Edwards later claimed that he remained motionless on the roadside for just a few minutes before he threw his vehicle into gear and sped home. But when he arrived at the house nearly an hour later, at about 12.30 a.m., the engineer knew that something was not quite right. Even so, he simply chalked it up to the trauma of this harrowing event, making him lose track of time. He stated, quote, It seems like a long time, I know, but I was petrified, and I do not want to go through that again, end quote. While that may be the case, the fact that Edwards had no direct memory of the time he lingered in his van forces one to wonder whether or not this might have been an example of missing time. That phenomenon is so often associated with alleged alien abduction cases. When he finally arrived home, his wife Barbara immediately knew that something was terribly wrong. Just before she could read him the riot act for being so late, Barbara watched as her pale husband walked past her directly to the liquor cabinet to pour himself a shot of bourbon. The trembling Edwards threw back the whiskey, hoping that the liquid fire would calm his jittery nerves, then turned to his apprehensive wife and said, quote, I've seen a silver man, end quote. Edwards fixed himself another drink and told his wife about his run-in with the bizarre, shimmering-eyed fiend. She claimed that she wasn't sure how to react to the story, but that she supported her husband. She said, quote, He had been very badly shaken, and I don't know what to make of it. I would have had to have seen it myself to really believe it, but he saw something very strange, I know. End quote. Later that night, Edwards was getting ready for bed when he abruptly stopped and began putting his clothes back on. He knew that he would have to set his fear of ridicule aside and report this abnormal event, especially considering that it happened in such close proximity to an atomic reactor. Anxious and feeling the effects of the whiskey, Edwards said to his wife, quote, I think I'd better go to the police. Will you take me? End quote. Barbara, of course, agreed and drove her husband to the police station at Padgate. This was located less than two miles from their home. The police constables on duty, including Roy, Kirkpatrick, and Rob Thompson, were understandably skeptical. But they soon realized that Edwards was clearly still scared. It was then that they began to take his encounter seriously. After some convincing, Edwards agreed to accompany the officers back to the scene of the encounter where they met up with a team of 20 of the Atomic Energy Security Guards. It bears mentioning that one of the men on the scene later stated that when the security team was told of Edwards' strange sighting, none of them seemed surprised. The man wondered if the security team had encountered the entity before. Unfortunately, the search party found no sign of the creature, nor any indication that the fence had been tampered with. When it came to searching the woods beyond the fence, the atomic energy guards refused to go, and the search was ended. 
The next morning, after a few restless hours of sleep, Edwards rolled out of bed and noticed that his watch had stopped at 11.45pm, which is presumably when he and his van were immersed in the entity's eye beams. He later claimed that all attempts made to repair the watch were unsuccessful. Edwards then realized that the sunburned fingers on his right hand were scarring with three dark marks that ran the entire length of the fingers. These strange marks faded within weeks of the incident. Edwards then felt it was time to address his transceiver. This was the piece that was damaged during the encounter. The expensive device was the property of his employer and was necessary for his work as a service engineer. According to UFO investigators Jenny Randalls and Paul Wetnall, who researched the case, it took almost three weeks before Edwards discovered that the device was too damaged to be repaired. He also found what the probable cause of the damage was. According to Randall's, quote, Apparently there had been a massive power surge through the set which had burnt out the whole of the transmitting diode circuit and most of the capacitors, end quote. The service repairman who had performed the diagnostic on the device surmised that the damage was likely the result of a massive surge which blew its circuitry apart. It would seem as though the repairman's summation would be consistent with Edward's account of events. In the days following the encounter, both police officers and independent investigators combed the location looking for any sort of clue that might indicate what this silver man was and where it had come from. By the end of the search, only two things of note were discovered at the scene. The first was an oval-shaped patch of flattened grass atop the embankment that the being had descended, which some feel may have been an indication of a landing site. The second unusual thing found by investigators was the dead body of a rabbit that had no evident injuries. While this animal may be completely unrelated to the Risley event, there are some who have speculated that it might have been an unintentional victim of the Silverman's energy beam. The police pursued the investigation for days and even tried surprising Edwards by showing him a man in a silver, fire-resistant suit, but Edwards insisted that it looked nothing like what he saw that evening. It wouldn't be long before the police would discard the inquiry altogether and dismiss the whole thing as, quote, just one of those odd incidents that happen from time to time, end quote. Despite the weeks of investigations, transceiver malfunctions, and the police ultimately dismissing the case, there was a second incident. This occurred only six days after the initial encounter. On Thursday, March 23rd, 1978, just after midnight, Edwards once again found himself at the site of the event. This time, he was with a man who was only identified as a freelance UFO investigator from Leeds. Edwards claimed that for a second time, he felt himself being overcome by the disturbing mental and physical sensations that had flooded him during his previous encounter with the Silverman. Fighting his urge to immediately leave the scene, Edwards forced himself to get out of the vehicle and began walking up the embankment with the man from Leeds. Once they reached the top, he and the investigator went their separate ways, and that's when Edwards noticed the silver man standing in the distance. As quoted from Randall's and Wetnell's report, atop the wasteland and walking away from him, end quote. It was at this point that the entity abruptly vanished and was never seen again. After seeing the creature again, Edwards ran down the hill, hopped in the vehicle, and sped off. 
it is reported that he abandoned the Leeds investigator. If that wasn't enough, Edwards had another strange encounter. He reported that on April 2nd, 1978, he and his wife were driving home around 2 a.m. They were on the same route that took them past the nuclear power plant when he was overcome by that same disquieting feeling that had gripped him twice before. For reasons he was unable to explain, Edwards felt compelled to bring his van to a halt at the location of his first sighting. Edwards then climbed out of the vehicle and stood in the center of the road, where, he claimed, the sensation only increased in intensity. It was then that he blacked out. When Edwards came to moments later, he scrambled back into the van and he and his wife drove home at breakneck speeds. It was then that the engineer pledged to never travel by that road again, no matter how far out of the way he had to go. And finally, ten days after the last incident, Edwards claimed that he had been awoken in the middle of the night by a deep electrical hum that seemed to fill his house. Edwards climbed out of bed, careful not to disturb his wife, and began searching for the source of the strange hum. The engineer searched his home, assuming that something mechanical had been left on. But when he found that nothing had been left on, nor anything out of the ordinary, he decided to check outside. According to Edwards, the sound increased in volume as soon as he opened the window, but he did not see anything that would cause the odd sound. Eventually, the noise faded and he returned to bed. A few days later, it was discovered that two residents of Risley had also heard the hum, and when they looked skyward, they realized that it was emanating from an oval red UFO. While there's no direct correlation between the UFO and the Silver Man, it is difficult not to make at least circumstantial connections. Later on, researchers discovered that on the same night as Edwards' first encounter, four unidentified youths were said to have spotted a cigar-shaped craft floating over the university research reactor area. This flap included eight other allegedly confirmed sightings in the weeks preceding the Risley event. Constables Thompson and Kirkpatrick took a particular interest in these strange goings-on and decided to look into nearby universities to see if all of this might have been a hoax. But they found no indication that it was. When Edwards heard about the constables inquiring about a possible hoax, he stated, quote, I wish they could tell me how they did it, how they blew up my radio and walked through a fence, some stunt. The aftermath of the encounter was hard on Edwards and his family. Although Spielberg's close encounters had yet to play in the Cheshire area, there was already a buzz for any story involving lights in the sky or extraterrestrial encounters. Once the police released the information regarding Edwards' eerie encounter to the local Warrington Guardian, the press descended on him and his wife like, quote, Sharks in chum-infested waters, end quote. Unfortunately, Edwards had no way of knowing when he reported his eyewitness account to the authorities that he would end up paying such a heavy toll for his honesty. But, as luck would have it, he was the first individual to report a close encounter with an ostensibly alien being following the massive publicity surrounding the UK premiere of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. 
Within days, the Edwards' home became a media mecca. Their lawns swarmed with reporters, amateur ufologists, curiosity seekers, and most disturbingly, disciples of the Aetherius Society. Members of this cult claimed to channel messages from extraterrestrials and believed that Edwards had been chosen by God to see the alien. But even worse than the believers were the throngs of skeptics who flocked to the Edwards property and publicly decried him as a charlatan who was either clinically insane or a liar. The Edwards neighbors confirmed that the brouhaha had grown so intense that the Edwards were forced to cancel their vacation plans and go into hiding. As disturbing as all of the public ridicule and media uproar was, the worst was far from over. Within a year of his sighting, just as things were starting to return to normal, Edwards became unexpectedly ill. He experienced a loss of energy and suffered from severe stomach pains. Edwards decided that he needed to go to the hospital, where, after a battery of tests, he was diagnosed with cancer of the kidneys. Edwards underwent major surgery to remove the cancer, but within a few months, the cancer reappeared. Within five years of his encounter with the Silver Man, Ken Edwards passed away. While most researchers do not make a correlation between Edwards' health and the Silver Man, there are some who have publicly wondered whether or not the Silver Man's optical discharge might have mutated Edwards' once healthy cells. Jenny Randalls, one of the most prolific investigators of this event, shared her opinion. She wrote, quote, the after-effects of this event were dramatic, perhaps even tragic. As for Ken, he over the next five years began to develop multiple cancers while still in his late 30s. He died from what may or may not be related injuries. How could you have ever proven that? End quote. So what are we left with and what are we to make of this encounter? I think Seaburn put it in an interesting way when he wrote, quote, much like Ichabod Crane and the notorious Headless Horseman of Sleepy Hollow, it would seem that yet another unsuspecting young man, while traveling down a dark and lonely expanse of road, came across a dastardly and potentially supernatural creature, which may have been responsible for prematurely shortening his life. But what was it? The general consensus in the Fordian community at the time was that the Silver Man must have been an extraterrestrial life form. End quote. That could make some sense if we were to believe Edwards' story and follow its logic. There was a flap of UFO sightings in that area at the time. That's right, and when you couple that with the release of the Close Encounters movie, it's no wonder his story went viral for its time. But that doesn't mean that any of it actually happened although it is a fantastic story. Very true, however, researchers, investigators, and even police have all said that Edwards was a reasonable man who was, quote, not inclined toward exaggeration or outright fabrication, end quote. I guess it's up to us to individually decide what we choose to believe. Like Seaburn said, there are certain elements of Ken's story that seem believable to me. However, there are other elements that are harder to believe. Seaburn did write something else about Edwards that I do believe I'd have to agree with, and that's, quote, The first factor that lends veracity to Edwards' story is the fact that he reported it to the police and not the media. This, to me, would seem to signify that he was less concerned with receiving attention and more worried about the safety of his community, end quote. 
Seaburn continues later with, quote, The engineer never attempted to capitalize on this phenomenon. As far as I've been able to discern, he made no effort to strike any television or book deals, nor did he try and sell his story to Hollywood, end quote. That is interesting. He never did pursue any sort of payday as a result of this encounter. In fact, his life became worse, not unlike the sheriff in the Falkville Metal Man case. Yeah, it's certainly an interesting case, and I'm glad we had a chance to finally cover it. And that's all we got for the first episode of Season 5. Anything to add, buddy? I think that's about it. Season 5, Episode 1, in the books. All right. Well, everybody, thanks so much for joining us for the premiere of Season 5. Welcome back to Kyle. And be sure to check us out on Instagram. Give us a like at 207Believe. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Kyle Sawyer. I'm no more Slavic. But stuck straight out of its chest like a Tyrannorin. <laughs> Like a (laughs) Tyrannosaurus. Okay. Like a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Hold on. Like a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Am I saying it right? Tyrannosaurus. 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 Or just check the. (laughs) Fuck. Or just check the show notes for links. (laughs) You're the one that starts this. (laughs) Bordered. Bordered. Jeez, I keep popping. Bordered. Jeez. Bordered. (laughs) Fuck.